Did you know that the, um, the new Safe Schools program, which has been introduced to Australian primary schools, is uh, teaching the kids gender neutrality, and it's um, using suspiciously unresearched advice like this. Sex is your physical aspects, i.e. your wobbly bits. And gender is how you feel in, in your mind in terms of masculine and feminine. It's funny because when I did queer studies in the 90s, that was like already dismissed as an idea, this idea that masculine and feminine are categories. I mean, they're contested categories. And yet, the new safe school program is teaching these categories. So that's right, little Johnny and Sally, they'll come in from play lunch after playing down ball, just before they have their lesson on long division and do chapter three of George's Marvelous Medicine. And they will have their safe schools lesson on which, among other things, they'll be teaching girls how to bind their breasts. This is outrageous! Did you know that the Lone Pine Anzac Day ceremony at Gallipoli is going to be axed? Bill Shorten said it was sacrilege to veterans, deeply disappointing to war widows, and a move which opposition leader Bill Shorten said would outrage all Australians. And the recently sacked Minister for Veterans Affairs, Stuart Roberts, said, given the extended time period visitors are on site, potential for extreme weather conditions and exposed location on rough terrain, the Lone Pine service will not be conducted from this year onwards. Outrageous! Did you know that Kanye West recently tweeted that Taylor Swift was a B-I-T-C-H? But he has come out and followed that uh, up with a series of other tweets that say... <laughs> I did not diss Taylor Swift and I've never dissed her. First thing is, I'm an artist and as an artist I will express how I feel with no censorship. And the second thing is I asked my wife for her blessings and she said it was okay. And third thing is I called Taylor and had an hour long convo with her about the line and she thought it was funny and gave her blessings. Personally I think we should shame Kanye West and burn all our records uh, in protest. I could go on and on and on with things that we are being outraged about uh, in the media, in culture, in 2016. We live in a new world fueled by the 24-hour news cycle and um, amplified by social media where we are swept up in what is called now outrage culture. Last year, uh, Slate magazine in America um, that looks at politics and culture, they actually tracked every day of 2014 and show um, what Americans were outraged about on each day for, for 2014, a new thing. And they give it a scale about reasonable to be outraged about, totally unreasonable to be outraged about. New York Times writer Tim Creda came up with this poignant description for what we're talking about here. He calls it outrage porn. He calls it that because he describes our culture's insatiable search for things to be offended by. And he says, we fe feed off in outrage porn the feeling of being right and the feeling of being wronged. It's like porn, he says, because it, it aims for a cheap, quick thrill at the uh, expense of another person, but without any accountability or commitment to that human being. And it often escalates into the public... Um, public shaming of, of, of groups and of individuals. It, it's all about labelling, it's all about caricatures, and it's all about the exclusion of people out of society as, as the offended people gather together in their mob against a common enemy.
shaming now occurs in all kinds of ways. Um, there's an angry blog post. It can even just be a tweet that goes out at the wrong time or a vicious comment on Facebook. Whatever the, member, me, the method is, people try to hurt people. Sometimes the shaming escalates into a full mob, a, a, a pretend community, a faux community that latches onto the negative verdict and piles it on. And this mob will position itself as, as righteous and will set about demonising the target. And while this starts online, it then flows out into offline, so into everyday culture. So we walk around with a messaging of outrage culture in the backs of our mind. It affects our worldview, our conversations and our relationships. So you might have been in a conversation at work or at a party or at school, whatever, and had someone shout back at you for your holding the wrong view on something. Perhaps your views are too liberal, too progressive. Perhaps they're too conservative. And perhaps they're just wrong according to the outrage machine. The first part of our vision statement at Mary Creek um, is that we want to be a, a, con a congregation, a community that has an open and charitable dialogue about Jesus with the no religion tribes. Those people who say, I'm not religious. Uh, this is the third time we've preached through the vision series. And each time I want to do it from a different angle and help us to look at the nuances and, and where culture is shifting. So today, in response to this part of our vision, I th I'm thinking to myself, and I want us to think about what does it mean to have this open and charitable dialogue in the context of outrage culture? Because it strikes me that part of the open and charitable dialogue is knowing what to say when you're feeling the outrage, when to separate yourself from it or how to critique it, how to know if you're part of the mob or if you're being the target of it. What, did you, what to do? Both um, Tim Clare and I were the target of um, online outrage culture. When the Fairness uh, in Religion in Schools blog wrote about us in regards to mustard, I felt that it was like what it was like to be this kind of anonymous victim in that I'd read about myself on their website, but it wasn't like I was reading about myself, like it was another person because they, they just kind of cobbled together some random Google searches and got all the facts wrong. It was like, you know, they were shaming me, but not me. But it still hurts to see that. And you wonder, what it, what, what's the after effect of this going to be? How am I going to respond to this? And I think to myself as well, the more Mary Creek stands up in the neighbourhood and is counted, is visible, and meddles in the community life, getting involved with um, serving the community, no doubt we will be at risk of being targeted at one point. And the worst thing we could do I think you'd probably fight back with more outrage to perpetuate the problem, to play the victim. The good thing is Jesus gives us a lot to work with. He too became the target of outrage. He stirred the pot and the mob came for him. He was seen, especially by the religious authorities, as having the wrong views on different matters. He was a threat. He was a problem for them. And how, so how did they respond? Also, interestingly, Jesus himself became outraged about various matters. There is, an, there is a place for appropriate outrage. This morning we're looking at the story of the woman caught in adultery, a very famous example of outrage culture in the first century, where the religious authorities who are allegedly targeting their outrage 
out Jesus brought in an anonymous victim to build their case against him. So let's look at the setting and the context of this passage as we think about responding to outrage. Now, if you've ever read this passage in your own Bible as opposed to the booklet, you'll notice it's often italicised or it's um, bracketed off. And that's because um, most scholars are pretty convinced that it wasn't part of the original Gospel of John and it was added a long time later. None of the original manuscripts have this passage in it. Um, Nevertheless, it's not to say that they're saying it didn't happen or that it's not true. Uh, They don't doubt the event and there there are reference to it outside the Bible or similar stories. And within the other Gospels, there are similar incidences where where the, the religious authorities target Jesus and try to publicly shame him. So just, just a, a little aside to, so you can understand what the context is and why it's italicised or bracketed off. So the passage begins here in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. We think that due to the wording of this passage, um, it's probably the week before he's crucified. And um, he's, he's walking backwards and forwards um, to Jerusalem and he spends his night in Bethany and he stops off at the Mount of Olives and that's what he does here. If you look at Luke 21, you'll see uh, a similar kind of incident. The outer court where this occurs serves as a venue for many scribes to, to be able to gather and mingle amongst the disciples. It's a very public space here. And outrage often occurs on the public stage, doesn't it? Um, perhaps outrage has grown in recent times because social media is the ultimate public stage. One, one reference on it and it can go viral. One tweet and you can get the sack. Like the, scholar, uh, the soccer journalist so- um, Scott McIntyre of SBS uh, who tweeted that Anzac Day was a cultification of an imperialist invasion of a foreign nation and he said a few other things and then eventually he gets the sack for, again, uh, undermining and being sacrilege against Anzac Day. If we're caught in the crossfire of outrage culture, then we can find ourselves slam on the public stage. We are not anonymous. People are watching. What will they see? And I've got four applications from this passage. I'll just tell you what it is now. Remember the anonymous victim? Look for the real agenda. Assume humility, not being a victim or being superior and promote salvation through Jesus. So let's think about that. Remember the anonymous victim. Verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Here we have our angry mob. They're the teachers of the law, also known as the scribes. They they assumed this role as lawyer, ethicist, theologian, catechist and jurist. Most of them were also Pharisees. Um, in terms of the branch of Judaism that they belonged to. They were outraged because this unnamed woman was caught in the act of sexual sin, of of adultery specifically. Now, it takes two to tango, as they say. You can't fornicate on your own. There's another word for that. These scribes only brought forward one person, the woman. Presumably, they just let the man run away. Perhaps the man just kind of was friends with them or something. Perhaps the scribes were male chauvinists and just worried about the woman. Sure, she had some involvement in the act of sin. She's not completely innocent, but we can't help but look at her straight away with compassion. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. And here we have, straight away, a first century example of outrage porn. The woman has been grabbed by the scribes and made use of to achieve their broader political goals. But she's a real person. She's made in the image of God. She has feelings. God knows how many hairs are on her head. He knit her together in her mother's womb. He loves her. We need to remember that our wrongly chosen words, they cut to the heart of a person. They tear them down. You might have been torn down by someone's words before. And that's what's being happened as they hold her up and sail this in front of Jesus on the public stage. Nobody likes being told they're a failure. Nobody likes being laughed at. Nobody likes being publicly shamed. And when we find ourselves caught up in outrage culture, we must remember the anonymous victim. In fact, as Christians, we should seek them out and perhaps point them out in a loving way as victims and then try and help them. Perhaps speak up for them if they've been shamed and silenced. I remember when um, Tony Abbott was um, kicked out by his own party as PM, um, and you know all the lefties are online going, "Hey, hey woo!" Um, Erica Hermans, who preached last year here, wrote a great post online about Schadenfreude. Uh, That's how you say it, isn't it? Schadenfreude. It's the pleasure you get from someone else's pain someone else's misfortune. And she points out that while you might be, not be a fan of Tony Abbott or his policies or his mannerisms or his budgie smugglers, Christians have no place in reveling in someone else's pain. He's a real person. He's made in the image of God. God knows how many heads are on his head. God knit him together in his mother's womb. God loves him. It's not what Jesus would do, rejoicing in his suffering. Disciples of Jesus don't get enjoyment out of other people's pain. So as we choose to not get swept up in the euphoria of the angry, self-righteous mob, people might think you're a bit weird. But get used to it, because we're meant to stand out. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Secondly, we're to look for the real agenda. Verse 5. In the, law, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, they say. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So this is a bit very public venue, so it's easy for the officials to mingle amongst the disciples and throw out difficult questions. As we're watching the American election unfold, we've seen this over and over again. Bernie Sanders' crew go to a Donald Trump meeting and it's hide and then ask the embarrassing question and vice versa. You can get away with it. It's a way of doing a gotcha moment. And what we see here is a complete giveaway from the, for, for the scribes and what their real agenda is. The scribes didn't care about even-handed justice. They didn't care about whether the woman was righteous or not. Rather, their true agenda is to catch Jesus and get him to say something that he wished he didn't say. They wanted him in this public setting to mumble his words, to have, a, to have a suppository of all wisdom moment, you know. They wanted Jesus to pull out a raw onion and chew into it, and then everyone to laugh, you know. Now, in the law of Moses, <coughs> there are three branches of the law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. This is something we've observed over time. You don't, it doesn't get mentioned like that in the Old Testament, but 
we can see that in how it pans out. And the civil law and the ceremonial law, that is fulfilled in Jesus. He comes and fulfills them. And they, they discontinue for Christians past the point of Jesus. But the moral laws that are based on God's character, his righteousness, on things like the Ten Commandments, they do continue with Jesus. In the civil law of Moses, which were culturally and, uh, and context-specific, it did state to uh, stone a betrothed virgin who cheated on her fiancé. Um, both people involved in the act should be stoned, according to Deuteronomy 22, 30, 23 to 24. Death was also prescribed for the unfaithful wives and their lovers. But stoning was not specified. This is in Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22. And it's worth mentioning that while Monty Python has made uh, you know, stoning very famous in the life of Brian, you know, with the stone him, all I said was that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. Stone him, you know. Actually, uh, scholars think that ad adulterers weren't really stoned much at all in the time of, in the first century of Jesus, in time in Palestine during Jesus' time. But the thing is, is, as I said before, the authorities aren't really interested in really the outcome of the case. Rather, they were laying a trap for Jesus as they tried to do regarding the issue of healing on the Sabbath and his opinion about divorce. Jesus could not be seen as a breaker of the law. He could be punished. And he would lose his status as a great rabbi. On the other hand, if he upheld the law, he would also lose in a way because he would lose his status as the, the, the religious leader for the people on the margins. He would have looked harsh. What's he going to do? Well, as we talk to people about what they are outraged about, it is good to dig deep and work out really what they're outraged about. What's going on here? And we can ask that question for ourselves when we feel outraged. What's really driving my anger here? What's the hidden agenda, if there is one? Perhaps we don't even know why we're getting angry. Before we hop in the bandwagon, we should check what's motivating our anger. Have we got the facts right? Do we know what we're talking about? Do we really care about the issue or are we seeking approval from others and acceptance into the group? Now, one of the reasons we should try and work out really what's going on, as Jesus did here, he knew that they were targeting him, not her, although he had compassion on her. The reason why we should do that is because outrage culture muddies the conversation. It gets everyone confused about having, you know, about getting to the heart of the issue. Some political scientists, um, Jeffrey Berry and Sarah Sobiriaj argue in their book, The Outrage Industry, they say outrage tactics such as ideological selectivity, vilification of opponents and fear-mongering make talking politics beyond our most intimate circles extraordinarily difficult, complicating our ability to have meaningful discussions about politics in our communities. And I argue that the same thing goes for our meaningful discussions about Jesus how can we have a meaningful discussion about Jesus when the waters are muddied by outrage? And this leads us to the third application, which is where to assume humility, not victimhood or superiority. Look at verse 6b. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
again, he stopped down, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, sometimes we Christians can have a victim mentality. We think that everyone is out to get us. We're losing ground. And so we get outraged internally with ourselves. You see it on Facebook. Look what Dan Andrews is doing. In other, in other ways, we can exercise hubris. We think we have the moral high ground. We can be self-righteous and knock others. But rather than be the victim or be arrogant and superior, rather we should take the position of humility. We see Jesus just relaxed, getting down on, his, on the ground in the sand and just scribbling on the sand. Words, we have no idea what he wrote. Many people have speculated. Maybe he's pretending to be the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments, who knows? That's just a guess. Either way, it's kind of an interesting delay tactic. It's a way to create a moment of a pause in the whole encounter. And then he stood up and said the words that are woven into our modern culture. A quote from Deuteronomy 13 verse 9 and, it, and also 17 verse 7. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They must not be guilty of this particular sin of adultery if they had to throw the first stone. When rape and adultery occurred in ancient society, women bore the visible scars often of this, of this rape, but the men could sort of nick off and go, yeah, you know. They couldn't hide it. But the men could pretend maybe that nothing happened. But with Jesus' words here, he cuts through um, the, the, the hubris of the religious authorities, the scribes. He cuts through that double standard. It's interesting, the woman was being targeted, but more so Jesus is being targeted. Yet he didn't fight back. He could have said anything. He could have got outraged back at them. He kept calm. He remained humble. He came to her defence, thought of the other person. And in doing so, I think he heaped burning coals on the scribes' heads just through his peaceful response. When we remain humble, we are being open and charitable. And this is more likely to promote the kingdom of God. And look at what happens as it continues at verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And with Jesus' powerful words, they're, just, they're walking away one by one in their shame. And this brings us to our last application, which is to promote salvation through Jesus. Look at verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus addresses the woman using the respectable Greek word for woman, agune. She, he, he's not interested in talking more about her guilt. But he does ask, has no one condemned you? We hear her voice only once in this story. No one, sir. Then Jesus comes to answer the original question of the scribes, what should be done with her? Only they're not even here to hear anymore. He says to her, despite what the law of Moses says, I do not condemn you. Why? Why doesn't he condemn her? Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Only Jesus has the right to forgive sins. 
And this is what he is doing here. It's not a random act of forgiveness, but one based on the repentance of the receiver. Leave your life of sin. Repentance is not so much feeling sorry as it is walking away, embracing a new life of obedience. Jesus, he didn't see her as, a, as anonymous, but he looked at her in her sin and showed grace and compassion. He loved her. Jesus could see really that they were targeting him, yet he wasn't going to get caught up in that and he was going to focus on her. And instead of retaliating, he took the humble position. He came to her defence, thereby actually causing the angry mob to leave in their shame. And finally, really what he's doing here is showing us what a truly open and charitable dialogue looks like. He doesn't leave it open-ended, but he gave her a new life. He told her to leave her life of sin and begin again. See, Jesus is the man who actually takes the outrage on himself so that we don't have to be shamed, so that we don't have to feel that shame anymore. He actually is the perfect antidote or response to outrage culture. My hope for us at Mary Creek is that we have an open and charitable dialogue amidst the outrage culture that is around us, that we will work hard at following Jesus' example, arising above the outrage and finding opportunities to lead people to Jesus so that they too can find new life. Let's pray that that can occur. Lord God, uh, we thank you for what Jesus did with a woman caught in adultery. And we pray that we can follow that example. Pray that we don't get swept up in outrage culture, but that we can be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, bringing new life as we interact with people in our neighbourhood. Amen.